Hello and welcome to another episode of Advancing the Profession, the podcast from me, Rob Jackson of Rob Jackson Consulting Limited. Uh, We're well into our second season now and I'm pleased to welcome as our guest this time around, Carl Wilding. Carl is a self-professed policy wonk and if you know the name, it's probably from his tenure at the National Council for Voluntary Organisations where he finished his time as chief executive. I've known Carl for a long time and we've had loads of really great and interesting conversations about all kinds of things to do with volunteering and nonprofits and stuff in the wider world that affects volunteering. And so I think we're going to have a really great conversation today. So welcome to the podcast, Carl. It's great to have you here. And why don't you kick us off by telling everybody that's listening today a little bit about your background and your kind of career journey to now, I suppose. Thanks, Rob, and good to see you. I worked for NCVO for for over 20 years, about 22 years, and it was actually my first place of work after I came out of university where I'd spent far too long, couldn't get a job, and and ended up staying there doing research that turned out to be about sort of like charities and people getting involved in and around hospitals. I was interested in mutual aid and, and sort of how people come together. NCVO was the first place that offered me a job. And actually, I think it was the first interview I, I got as well. So there was a bit of destiny about that. And and I joined the research team there where pretty much I, I sort of moved upwards. And after becoming head of research and head of policy, I then became the director of policy, which then later on, I, I took over responsibility for volunteering from the utterly wonderful Justin Davis-Smith yeah. when he left NCVO after the merger with Volunteering England. And even though I think I had the bug before, I, I absolutely sort of like got the bug even more. Left NCVO a couple of years ago. I'm doing a few different things now. I'm I'm part of the team at the Centre for Philanthropy at Kent University, where I'm a lecturer. Do a bit of consulting as well. Yeah. Excellent. And you were, I think, the first senior person in a national infrastructure body, certainly in England, who, when they took on the volunteering brief, brought a whole bunch of people together in a room who were people like me and some of the other guests that we've got on this season of the podcast and volunteer managers and kind of, you know, I went, okay, tell me what you think we should be doing and tell me you showed a genuine interest in volunteering. And I think from my experience, a lot of people still in those kind of national infrastructure bodies, they talk a good talk about volunteering, but they don't kind of, they don't give off a sense that they really get it. So what was it for you that kind of, because you could have taken on that brief from Justin and just kind of not run with the volunteering side. So what is it for, from your perspective that really made you take an interest in the volunteering agenda? Well, what I can't do, in in all honesty, Rob, is is give you some sort of like story about how like I volunteered since I was a child and my family all did it. I, I don't have any of that. I suspect I'm probably like like lots of people in that I've dipped in and out of yeah. stuff over my life. I've never been a volunteer manager, so I can't sort of vouch for that side. But um, I was I was very very lucky at NCVO to work with inspiring people who were the best in the game in terms of understanding volunteering. So there was an enthusiasm that, that sort of came from from Justin, from Mike Locke, who, you know, I mean, along with Justin, 
I mean, has been instrumental in the field in terms of sort of understanding volunteering from Nick Ockendon and, and all the people that led the Institute for Volunteering Research, Jarena Chowdhury and Kristen Stevenson in the practice bit. So I, I, I work with really good people, I think, and, and you can't but help not be sort of shaped by that infectiousness, and, and but also that professionalism. And also I have volunteered myself and I, and I have that bit of a sense inside of me that it's something that just makes you feel good. And, and I know that's a bit flimsy as a sort of a justification, mm-hmm. but I mean, I, I, I've certainly felt it from sort of that side. And then from a, you know, I mean, if I'm going to be sort of selfish about about some of this stuff, you are right that that, that volunteering doesn't get the recognition that it's that it deserves. It's not mm. taken seriously, mm. and I think that's wrong. And and you know, I mean, if I was going to be really selfish about it, I I, I still, well, it's, it's both selfishness but also frustration. I almost sort of feel like there's an opportunity there, and 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 that we should be sort of taking on that agenda because it's it's such an important agenda that that needs more in certainly on the sort of the policy side and the sort of the recognition side i'll say one thing about sort of the broader sector which i mean i think is a reason why leaders should be interested in this stuff and that is it's my sense from from what i read and and the people i talk to and and we'll we'll talk about sort of like how how the world is changing a bit later no doubt but it's my sort of sense that we are in a world now where the way that people support the causes that they believe in is changing yeah and and you have pointed out so many times rob that 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 when we think about how people support causes we find it difficult as a sector to move beyond talking about money and talking about giving and i think that's wrong and I, i think i've taken a lead from from you there that if even if we're interested in understanding about how we get people to give more money it actually helps us if we understand about why they give time. Yeah. And it helps us if we support them to give more time. So I think we've got to see all these different behaviors as all part of the same ecosystem. And by just focusing on one of them, I don't think we're helping ourselves in terms of the sustainability of whether you call it the sector or social action or indeed the public sector in the long term. So that's why. Yeah. As you said, I've been talking about this for a long time. And I think it even goes as far as we undermine the moral authority that we quite often claim as a non-profit sector by only valuing the donated pound or by valuing the donated pound over the donated hour. So the private sector knows that the way that it goes about doing things is it's got money and it could invest money and then it uses that money to generate more money. And as long as we're only ever talking about the voluntary sector in exactly the same terms, in purely financial terms, what we can fundraise, what we can invest that in so that we can generate more money, we're actually talking a private sector narrative about how the sector goes about doing things. And the distinctive to me, and I would say this because I've got 28 years background in volunteer management, is actually where you can bring that volunteering element in. I think that is one of the things that makes the non-profit third voluntary, civil society, whatever we want to call it, sector, stand out as being different. And and if we're not paying attention to that, we're not really claiming that authority that we want to be able to claim to say that we're distinctive and different and bring a different perspective on things. I, I think that's all right. And and by the way, when you said that you'd worked in the sector for 28 years, I think you're a bit of a wonk as well. Oh, um, com- God, I'm completely a wonk. <laughs> By the way, in case anyone listening didn't know, there's a policy wonk is someone who knows their subject backwards. Yeah. Well, I've, 
Uh, I've rapidly got to the same position that Susan Ellis was in when she said to me years ago that she'd forgotten more about volunteer management than some people had ever learned. And the longer I get into it and the more my memory fades, the more I feel that's the case. Can I come back to your point about this thing that makes our sector distinctive and so on? Volunteering is part of, it's not just about what makes us distinctive, but it's also part of telling the story about who we are. Yeah. And I've worked, again, I've been really lucky in my career to work with fantastic people who work in the sector, but try and look at the sector through other people's eyes. It strikes me that we have some real challenges at times with the I mean, rubbish language that we use to describe bits of who we are and, and, and what we do and so on. And about obsessing about talking about the sector, for example, when actually a lot of the time people don't understand this stuff. We've talked before that, I mean, there aren't many people who say, I'm going to swing by my local VCSE organization and do some social action on a Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. They understand words like volunteering. Yeah. And, and and I think we've sort of got to build upon that. And, and people, I think, can really relate to it. Yeah. It's about changing those perceptions, not changing the language, isn't it? And I've said for years, if I had a pound for every time somebody had tried to start a debate about whether or not we should come up with another word for volunteering. I'd be very rich and reclining on a beach in the Caribbean somewhere right now. There's a couple of things that you've said that I still use all the time. One of which is is nobody ever said I'm getting up on a Saturday morning to go and do some social actioning, which you just said. But the other one, which I do just want to touch on, you spoke at a strategic people conference that Agenda Consulting held in London a few years ago now. And I can remember one of the things that you said that's that stuck with me and I use it all the time is we've got to remember that they're not your volunteers. You are their organization. Unpack yeah. that a little bit for me. So I'm I'm a bit of a magpie and I, I, I don't have an original brain or an original thought in my brain. And, and I stole that. There's from a guy called Mark Phillips who runs oh. a fundraising consultancy called Blue Frog. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Mark used the phrase when, and I think quite possibly Mark got it from somewhere, where someone said, they aren't your donors, you are their charity. Mm. It really resonated with me because sometimes as, as organizations, we have this sort of hug, hug, hug mentality yeah, yeah. that was born from a scarcity mindset. Yeah. The idea that there are not enough, there are not enough donors, there are not enough volunteers and, and so on and i think sometimes people can look at that and and it puts them off our bit of the world mm -hmm. sorry i'm gonna have to use our sector <laughs> and, and i wonder if instead what we should be starting from is more of an abundance mindset that lots of people want to get involved and and actually a lot of the time the challenge is how do they navigate our world so that they can mm. find the right opportunities to get involved. And it also resonated with me because I'm pretty sure there's a fair bit of evidence around that says that people don't give or give their time or money to organizations. They give it to causes. Yeah. And and I think there's there's an argument that that's especially the case with the millennial generation and, right. and, yeah. and possibly Gen Z afterwards. So I think we've got to be really careful that we sort of like claim volunteers, donors as just ours. And I think we've got to look above the parapet a bit more than that, haven't we? Yeah. And we have a responsibility as leaders, not just to our own organizations or indeed our own causes. 
we have a broader societal responsibility than that. So I think we should be trying to think about how do we grow the cake, not just how do we grow our slice uh, of the cake. So having attitudes that we're trying to do things that are for the common good, but build volunteering or giving of any description more broadly, I, I think should be how we, we should at least be trying to start off. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because some of those ideas i can remember knocking around in the early part of the 2000s with a paper that jeff brudney and lucas mesh wrote the late jeff brudney now sadly called it ain't natural which was all about conceiving volunteer time as a natural resource and their argument was that what lots of organizations do is they kind of churn and burn through volunteer time so they use up volunteer time they kind of hold people close until those people are either burnt out or really so hacked off with their volunteering that they leave and then they never want to volunteer again. And their argument is that if we do that, it's like it's like viewing volunteer time as a the way that we maybe view fossil fuels and, and carbon and we're just going to burn through it and burn through it with no regard to the consequences. Yet actually, if we see it as a as a resource that we all benefit from and we all draw from, it's incumbent upon us to steward that responsibly so we can all draw on it again in future. And of course, this was published I mean, 2006, 2007, just kind of, to my mind anyway, flew past and people weren't really interested. Now, suddenly this kind of concept is starting to gain some traction because it's, you know, it's a bit more of the moment. And I think that whole idea about how do we work together our competition for volunteers is not each other it's what people can spend their spare time doing so how can we all work together to steward that resource effectively is a really interesting one so i'd like to turn now to um pay royalties to you on something that you said to me a few years ago that i sort of keep using and and and, and the starting point for this is that when i was at ncvo we had some research from the office for national statistics mm. presented at one of our volunteering days and and the research was about time use survey right and essentially the ons asked people to keep diaries about what they do during yes, the day yeah and and basically what you see is that the big shift in what people are doing in terms of how they spend their days is that multimedia yes. games box sets I was going to say DVDs, but you know, I mean that that would show that I'm definitely not very current. This is the stuff that that, that people are spending more and more of their leisure time on. So the quote from you that, that that you deserve royalties from is that you quoted Reed Hastings, chief exec of Netflix, yeah, who basically said that their biggest competitor it's not Amazon, or somewhere else. It's sleep. Yeah, <laughs> and and I sort of so my sort of starting point to your sort of to your point there is that like. We are we are in competition with other activities in life, and people are not volunteering because they're too busy. They're volunteering because they're finding other things to do that, to be frank, yeah. are more enjoyable. Yeah. At times. Yeah. yeah. So I I I sort of come back, I come back to this sort of thing about you know, I mean, how are we going to grow the cake, and 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 what have we got to do? And and another thing that, that, that it was the chief exec of RVS about. This must be a decade ago. Dave McCulloch. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Dave said, when I became chief exec at RVS, he said, I looked at every strategic plan that had, that had been produced since the organization was established. 
And the start of every strategic plan basically began, there aren't going to be enough volunteers. So we've got to do something in this strategic plan to increase the number of people who volunteer. And I almost sort of wonder if if, if one of our challenges has always been, and, and maybe going ahead, is this scarcity mindset, whereby we think that there aren't enough volunteers and we've got to do something about it. And when we think that there aren't enough volunteers, I think a lot of the time we sort of conclude, well, it's their fault mm-hmm. because not enough people want to get involved. So therefore, we've got to do things to increase recruitment, which is your point that you've just made yep. about, about seeing them as a natural resource. When I wonder if one of the lessons of the pandemic is that, hell, people want to get involved. And when they see a need, they will do something, but they do it on their terms. Yeah. So, you know, we, we keep coming back to what, what is it what is it on our side of the equation that, that we're doing that's creating opportunities that fits with how people want to get involved? Yeah. And we'll get onto that in a little bit more detail in a minute, but you mentioned the pandemic there and the and this kind of scarcity mindset. And obviously a lot of people at the moment are thinking, you know, seeing slow volunteer recovery rates, they're seeing the impact of cost of living crisis, they're worried about volunteer numbers as service demands are going up. You've just been involved in some work with IPPO about volunteering during the pandemic. Tell us a little bit about what that was and kind of what you found. And I'll I'll put the link to it in the in the show notes as well so that people can go and access the article that was published on October 31st. So the International Public Policy Observatory or IPPO is based at University College London. And they're looking at what the impact of COVID has been and, and what to do next. So that they aren't an organization looking specifically at volunteering, but this has been part of their remit and they're trying to help policymakers decide what to do next. And they did they did an evidence review, which I, I'm not going to get into the details of the method or anything like that. But I think for the purposes of this conversation, they're trying to find really high quality evidence that that their peers think is high quality. So therefore, hopefully, I mean, you, you would say that this is really high standard. Right. They haven't found anything that I think the people listening to this call, or sorry, to this podcast, would be surprised by. No. It helps, for example, their review of the literature, they found that there is evidence that creating a strong identity for volunteering is helpful. That the importance of support and infrastructure for volunteering is conducive to sort of helping people get involved, that more flexibility is important. So I think I think that what is being said is is in some respects less important than the who is saying it and not, and the basis on which they are saying it. They're right. sort of saying things that we've always said, but to go back to the early bit of the conversation, we we, we get ignored, don't we, sometimes when when we say these things. And I think the fact that they are saying it is 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 important. In terms of my role, I'm interested in, okay, well, what do we do with evidence? How yeah. can you and I as practitioners, how can we use evidence to sort of inform and shape the debate that, that we've had, that, that we have all the time? And and again, you know, in both of us, I think I think we are users of evidence, but of I think also we we are quite realistic about what the limits of evidence are and in in shaping policy and practice. Yeah. So what I try to do there is 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 
take their findings about what the literature is saying. And I've tried to match that with my sense of, okay, well, what's been happening on the policy landscape during COVID? And what are the things that 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 work in terms of supporting volunteering that that make a difference? And in that sense, it's a good document if you just want if you want a place where you've got a couple of pages where you can send people and says, well, actually, we do need to support local infrastructure. Yeah. And we need leadership. We we need people to step up and and not just as as someone said to me a few years ago, not just sort of think about volunteering as something that we can sprinkle onto a problem that will sort it out, but instead have a really clear strategic vision of what you think volunteering is for. Yeah. Um, and we've got to invest in this stuff. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not free. And and conversation that you and I have been involved in this morning around heritage volunteering, there were some really good things that came out of that about the fact that we shouldn't just be obsessing about filling the hopper and just getting more volunteers all the time. Far better to have fewer volunteers who have a really good quality experience and who are impactful in, in, in what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of Tony Goodrow at Better Impact, who at a conference a few years ago said, every industry in the world understands productivity as more output, more outcome, more impact for less input. Except the volunteering world seems to only pay attention to the input and to hell with the amount of output, outcome and impact. You know, we're we are just fixated on those numbers. And I was talking with Sue Carter-Carl, who you and I both highly regard as a writer in our yeah. sector field in this same series of this podcast. And she was saying the number of volunteer managers she heard from who said, my organization's looking at cutting my post because our volunteer numbers have dropped during the pandemic and my success is measured on how many volunteers I have. And you just think, really, we've got to get more sophisticated than this. But I, th I think the, reading the summary of the IPPO stuff, what really stood out for me was two of the points that you made in there, that this needs investment for a start. And to me, investment isn't always going cap and hand to government, because I think certainly our government aren't that interested at the moment. But there's a role for funders to play in this. And it's great to see the Scottish Volunteering Action Plan acknowledging that the volunteering movement needs to do more to engage with funders so that we, we change the funding regimes and we influence them more. But that that investment needs to be in both the capacity of organisations to effectively engage volunteers, volunteer management. Yep but also in local infrastructure. And that local infrastructure piece, for those that don't know, I spent six years at Volunteering England, precursor to the work that Carl did at NCBO, working with local volunteer centres across England, which had been decimated by the decade of austerity. That's the last decade of austerity, not the one we're about to start. And when you lose that infrastructure, you realise that you've lost not a building, not a meeting space, but you've lost people, you've lost relationships, you've lost community connections that are incredibly powerful. And I see colleagues in Australia going through exactly that same thing where their federal government thinks effective volunteer brokerage can be done through a laptop and a website and you don't need local infrastructure to do it. And they are going to find themselves, it's the same debate we were having 12, 13 years ago, and they're going to find themselves where we are now 12, 13 years later on, where we know during COVID that the local mutual aid groups that sprung up did brilliant work, but the ones that did really brilliant work were ones that were, were able to be connected into local infrastructure that was there and still existed. So for me, 
to you listening, all of you listening, I really encourage you to go and have a look at this IPPO document because it makes some very compelling, if not inspiring for us, arguments about why actually this stuff needs to be taken seriously. So when I stand back from the policy work that I've been for them, when I stand back from it, a few observations I had. First of all, I think we obsess about new ideas Mm -hmm. and innovation in Mm -hmm. in this area and that we've got to find a new policy solution to this problem when actually I think we've got the the toolkits there already. Yeah, yeah. It's about... It's about using what we've got and, and about being a bit harder headed about about the things that are working and make a difference. I think my second reflection standing back is that certainly in England, we have a very hands off approach to thinking about the role of volunteering at a sort of a strategic level in society. And and I contrast that with Scotland. And yeah. I mean, I, I know not everyone thinks that that the outcomes framework is, is sort of been implemented and it's got far enough but but canada but australia and the fantastic stuff they're doing there at the moment about strategy and and to be frank i think we can do better and then the third one is that everyone's obsessing about about what do you do in let's call it wartime or an emergency and how do we build upon that and it's almost you need to flip it around yeah and and, and i think the most successful places are the ones where there was already that culture of engagement. There was trust between organizations. There were relationships, as you described, so that when the emergency does come, they are already resilient. So we've got to stop thinking about what you do during crises, and instead you've got to think about what you do during peacetime so that you're ready for when the crisis comes. Yeah, yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And how much more ready we would have been if we hadn't taken the decision to cut infrastructure as deeply as we did yeah absolutely you also do a lot and we've talked about this as well um about the world of work and when i say the world of work i don't mean to distinguish we could get into an existential debate about whether volunteering is work or not but paid work and how the world of work is changing which you know immediately people start thinking about because of what we've been through in the last two and a half years of remote working and hybrid working and all of these kinds of things but it's been going on Longer than that, we've been talking about the nature of work and all of these kinds of things. You've looked at that a lot. What do you think are some of the the interesting debates, thoughts, ideas, philosophies knocking around in there that might be relevant to to people listening to this, to to volunteer engagement professionals who are looking to kind of upskill and upscale their practice? Let me start by saying that you and I ha- have been sort of talking about this stuff for a minute for a long time. I think both of us are clear, and, and, and Helen, who you'll interview later in the series, she very appropriately sort of said, no one can predict the future. No, absolutely and, and not. But you can create the future, and and you can understand what are the driving forces that, that are shaping sort of where we're going to get. So a bit like you, Rob, I, I sort of come at this in the sense that I'm interested in I'm interested in how volunteering is changing and how civil society more broadly is changing. Don't have the answers, but there you go. If I was sort of thinking about the future of my organization, I'd be thinking about, first of all, these trends that we knew about already coming into COVID. Yeah. So the increasingly informal, episodic nature of, of getting involved where people are less loyal to individual organizations, they're probably more interested in causes. They're using digital tools and techniques 
to connect themselves and to organize themselves and so on. And, and I think one of the ways that you can think about what COVID did is that you can think about it as an accelerator of yes. existing trends. So things like the, the shift to sort of digital, I, I think that was sped up by COVID. Yes, absolutely. Um, a small sidebar, uh, uh, this possibly is another podcast, but I think people obsess too much about the role of digital in enabling people to do the actual volunteering versus the role of digital in facilitating and managing and administering people to volunteer. They're two very different things, but I think I think they get lumped together. Um, and then there's the role of COVID as a disruptor. What did it yeah. change? What what did it do sort of differently? And the very sort of obvious sort of thing to sort of say here, but you know, I mean, there's lots of data about this, is is it saw the rise of of, of what I've heard some people call the at-home economy. Okay. So for some people, that's the fact that then they're no longer going into work and they're working yep. at home. Yep. For other people, it's the fact that they're not even walking to the takeaway that's 200 meters <laughs> down their street. They're getting someone to deliver it to their home because they don't want to leave their home. Yeah. It's, it's about looking at what's happening with retailing, where the proportion of retail that shifting to online was also sort of accelerated sort of by COVID. So I think what I'm sort of trying to say here, and I don't know what the answers are, but it sort of strikes me that people's lives have different geographies mm -hmm. to what they had prior to the pandemic, but also the opportunities for interaction in people's lives are fewer. Yeah. The opportunity, and, and whether there are some interesting things here, and I hope I can articulate this, is that, is that it's argued that lots of services that increasingly that we use that are delivered over the web and, and so on, everything is about reducing friction in our lives. Mm -hmm. I mean, quicker, easier, and so on. And whether it's getting your food delivered, you're taking out your library books. And essentially what my argument to you is that where I worry is that the opportunities to build community, they often come at those moments of friction yeah. in our lives. You know, like when, when you go to your local tesco extra yeah like you don't talk to anyone behind the till anymore because you're self-serving mm. and so mm. it, it's all those little things where like you where you might meet up the equivalent of the school gate and talk about what you're doing yeah. in, in in where you live and so on so i i guess what i'm sort of worried about sometimes is as a sector and especially if you think about that digital agenda we are we are contributing to that frictionless society that's meeting people's immediate wants and desires but we might not be doing something to help ourselves in the longer term in terms of building community mm. so I, th I think there's a bit of that on the future of work stuff there are some really interesting people that are talking about how work is becoming unbundled right into sort of component parts and about how increasingly you're seeing jobs turned into a series of discrete small tasks yeah which yeah. you sort of paid for separately and indeed, we're seeing some volunteer involving organizations respond to that task-based agenda by chunking things up. Yeah. Yeah. And so on. But what sort of volunteering is that creating? Mm. Yeah. Task-based episodic volunteering. And is that the sort of volunteering that we need? And and here I'm interested in people like David Robinson, mm -hmm. if you know mm -hmm. David, yeah. the relationships project. And 
And this idea of, okay, well, if we want to build relations in communities, if we want to build relations in public services, how we get people involved is important. I, I should say in passing here, Rob, I mean, I, I'm asking questions here and, I, and I'm actually probably creating problems, mm. which you've accused me of before about. <laughs> I'm not saying this because I'm sort of trying to be critical of how we're getting people involved. I'm just sort of saying that there are consequences or, or there are implications for how we respond to people mm. and how they want to get involved and that maybe we're not thinking about mm. all the time. And, and what I find fascinating about it is, and you mentioned the word episodic in there. So, you know, Nancy McDuff was one of the first people in the States to start talking about episodic volunteering. And people quite often jump onto the idea of episodic volunteering is really short term, like micro volunteering kind of stuff. And, and actually, all Nancy ever meant by it was it's volunteering that has a clear beginning, middle, and end. It's not something you sign up for in day yeah. one and you never know when you're going to leave. You know, that old, what I always use the shorthand of I'm going to sign up for two days a week for the next 20 years of my life if I live that long kind of volunteering. We and the Hotel California model of all. Yeah, yeah, the Hotel California. You can check out, but you can never leave. That feels like my career in places as well, to be perfectly honest. But this, <laughs> this is not too much confession. But it's interesting to me how we always we always approach those things from complete opposites. So it's either all volunteering has to be really short term or all volunteering has to be really long term. So I can remember one of the, the quotes quite early on in NFP Synergy, as they were, were then's report in 2014, w the new Alchemy report, there was a volunteer manager in there who said, well, it's all very well and good volunteers wanting short-term opportunities, but I don't have any, I don't have any long-term opportunities I can chunk up into shorter-term bits. And it was like, well, maybe you don't, because nobody's saying the lifeboat crew has to be an episodic volunteering role. Nobody's saying mountain rescue has to be micro-volunteering. But it's what else you could come up with that adds value to that. And it's then when we see it with, and again, debating it with conferences and stuff, it's either got to be online or it's got to be back in real life. There's there's very little in that kind of middle bit in the mix. And for me, one of the really interesting things about volunteering is, yeah, let's, we know people, at least initially, have got all those demands on their time, like we were talking about earlier on, they want more flexible, they want volunteering that they can fit into their lives. And so we design short-term volunteering roles around that, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't have some sort of journey there for them. If they want to commit to a longer-term role, we've got them there. You know, just because somebody, I, don't, I suppose I could, I could use this as an example just because i started my working life out delivering newspapers and doing a shift for a couple of hours on a on a saturday morning delivering newspapers doesn't mean that's always going to be my career i'm going to want different things in my life and so i think we can come at a lot of these things in we think of them in very binary extreme terms rather than in that middle and the middle is where i'm really interested in how we can make that bridge between one and the other. That's a very long-winded way of making a point in response to what you said. And it's a messy middle. So the, the sort of the two yeah. ends of the spectrum we just talked about are about episodic versus sort of committed. And you I mean, I, I think that's the challenge. I mean, in some respects, I, I think the bigger challenge that we have to deal with, and, and I mean, I probably am being negative now, is, is in engaging people to do things that we as organizations want them to do mm -hmm. versus 
the people who want to get involved to do things that they want to do. Yes. Yes. And 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 this is the other side of the the they are not your volunteers, you are their organizations quote. In the sense that I think what's happened over the last 20 years is that the web has completely upended the relationship between supporters and organizations. Yeah, yeah. Whereas before it was this relationship where the organization was in control, they had all the information. There was a command and control structure where they told you what to do. And to be quite frank, you just did it. Yeah. Whereas now it's upended it where individuals often have more insight about what might be happening sort of at, at local level. And you see organizations almost chasing them, trying to keep up with what it is that they want to do instead. And and I think that's a tension that I think that's quite hard to bridge sometimes where we want people to do things that that, that we want to do. And and one might add to that in ways that we want them to get involved yeah. as well. Yes. So yeah. If I yeah. had another grand sort of, I don't know, trend that I mean, I think we have to sort of work against this. One end of the spectrum is this desire for flexibility and, and to remove friction from your life, which is this unstoppable force. And then at the other end of the spectrum is the immovable object of of risk and this idea in society that we can eradicate risk from anything that we do yeah, in life yeah, and absolutely. everything is safe. Absolutely. And one of the things that I've I've spoken about in the past, and it's in part informed by um, you sharing with me stuff from Clay Shirky's book, Here Comes Everyone, but also from the book New Power. This is a audio medium, a podcast, but Carl and I can see each other whilst we're recording this. And I can see that he has a copy of New Power on his <laughs> on his bookshelf behind him. But what do we really do all day? That's another one. Okay. And then Helen Timbrell's mm. put me on to Citizens by John Alexander recently as well. But what this idea that's been percolating around for a while that actually people don't need organizations to change the world anymore. They can change the world through connection, through connection on social media, through connection on technology. We saw that clearly during some of COVID. And so it's about our organizations striving to show how we're relevant to that rather than be found to be obsolete because an Extinction Rebellion or a Black Lives Matters or a Stop Oil protest comes along and completely changes the game around us. So trying to stitch these ideas together then, Rob, there's this sort of desire for sort of flexibility and informality that we're seeing in, in volunteering numbers. There's, there are voluntary organisations and indeed other volunteer-involving organisations that I think look at social movements with a certain envy. Yep. And, and there's a lot of rebranding, certainly in the voluntary sector of organisations, saying that they are social movements. Not entirely sure about that they are in some cases, but, but, but sort of there you go. And then within those organizations, you're seeing new thinking about how do you structure work? So holacracies, for example, these sort of like really flat management structures. You've got organizations like Bertolt that have these self-managing teams and relying on trust sort of much more. And I, and I can't but help think that, that some of these things are sort of shaping volunteering. And then from the volunteers' perspective, the book I was just waving in front of you there, called What Do We Really Do All Day? It's it's a book that looks at the time use survey that I mentioned oh, before. Yeah. And, and essentially what this does over a sort of a 20-year gap or thereabouts, no, a 30-year gap, is that it asks the question, how enjoyable 
are, are these things that you do during the day mm. and essentially what it's saying is that volunteering is less enjoyable than it was 30 years ago mm. according to participants in the survey so i think i think some of this some of these tensions are coming out in the sense that people don't want these formal stuffy organizations that, that they feel are an anchor on them in terms of the social change that they want to achieve and they're going out and just trying to do things so we've got to try and find ways of engaging people with the things that we need doing yeah. work in some cases that we we want doing but we've got to find ways of engaging them that fit with how they want to do stuff and i think that's where we need more leadership to come back to your one of your yeah. earlier questions where we need where we need more investment yeah. in, in what we do but it, it's about how do we organize and administer volunteering and i think a lot of the ways that we do it it looks to me like they are stuck in a generation at least one generation ago my kids wouldn't recognize most of this stuff no 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 which brings us to really forward looking and you mentioned earlier on there's some brilliant work being done and some brilliant research being done as part of it in Australia, volunteering Australia, developing a new volunteering strategy for the nation in response to persistent declining numbers of volunteers even before COVID. Scotland have got their volunteering action plan that now builds on the Scottish volunteering framework. We've got the vision for volunteering here in England, which explicitly talks about needing to shift those power dynamics in volunteering. And you mentioned earlier on about, you know, it, are, are these the right kind of things? What's your take on those? Do, do you think the vision for volunteering is the right thing for us in England? Do you think we could be doing more different? Discuss. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel a bit torn about this uh, in the sense that 20 odd years ago when Jeff Morgan was was running the strategy unit for the Prime Minister and, and yeah. they were talking about doing a strategy for civil society that, that then sort of became the performance and innovation unit report if you remember that rob i do yeah. he was sort of like mm, not sure this is a good idea that, that government should try and do any sort of strategy around voluntary sector or, or sort of volunteering because you can't sort of control it and then i i'm sort of conscious that you know in other people and i think justin davis smith is one of them that to sort of can point to various initiatives over time where lots of effort has been made to try and shape this stuff and and little little has changed Yep, I've been directly involved in some of that myself. Yeah, so in terms of sort of like what do we do and sort of what next, I, I am sort of of the view that we know what the answers are already and we know what a lot of the answers are and and, and I think it's about trying to share those or, or perhaps understand a little bit more about the context in which those answers sort of work. I've been really impressed by what I've seen in Australia. I haven't read all of it, but but it looks really sensible to me in, in terms of its approach. And and I think the vision for volunteering here gives us a good starting point for that. I do feel though that we it feels like we need to sort of build a bit more on that. And I yeah. I do look with envy at some of the futures work around whether it's there are lots of academics interested in the future of work, for example, at the minute. Yeah, yeah. And I and I feel a little bit envious of that. And I and I wish we had a bit more of that around volunteering, if I'm honest. Yeah. I think I I mean I, I did a whole podcast episode with Toby Johnson about the the vision for volunteering because it really resonated with her that that England had done this piece of work and and I think there's some fantastic stuff in there. I, I think what's lacking in it at the moment is a bit of which may be where you are coming from is a little bit of momentum that that 
you know, we're recording this on on the 8th of November. That was launched on the 6th of May. It doesn't feel like a lot's happened. It may well be that there's some stuff coming out from NCVO and NAVCA and AVM and others over the course of the next few months. But for a 10-year strategy, we're, we're kind of most of the way through the first year. And obviously, there's lots going on in society and everything's kind of shifting constantly around us with government and, and all the other things that are going on. But it, it does feel like there's a bit of stalled momentum on that at the moment that really needs to kick up a gear. Because there's loads of great stuff in there that's really could be incredibly transformative, but they're very clear that in order for that to take, in order for that transformation to take place, everybody needs to be, everybody in volunteer management, everybody in the sector needs to be really engaged in that. It's not going to happen just if a couple of people want to make some action happen. So my sense is that if we wait for government to lead on this, we'll be waiting for a long time. Oh, absolutely, and. and- that's not a political point, Rob. That's no. whoever, whoever this government is, or whoever forms the next government. We're not in. We're just not important enough in terms of the sort of the, the, no. the quite serious problems that they have to deal with. No, uh, absolutely. So, so I think we have to take the lead ourselves. I think sometimes I think you are right to criticise me for saying that. You I mean I'm very good at pointing out the problems with volunteering, and that if we're going to make headway on this. I think we've got to do more in terms of identifying when, where, and how volunteering is a solution yep. rather than just broad brush. Wouldn't it be lovely if, if we all held hands together and volunteered at the weekends and like the world would be a better place? Because it does feel a bit like that sometimes, the way we yeah, talk it about it. I suspect that a lot of the changes that, that, that will lead to more people involved more of the time actually are not about policy change. No. They're not about big sweeping statements about we want 50% of the, pol- of the population to volunteer. They're about the changes that are made by volunteer managers at that sort of operational level. So therefore, that requires those volunteer managers, A, to understand how that world is changing. And I, and I think things like this hopefully help. But also, they need resourcing and empowering. And and you have argued many times in the past, no one would set up a fundraising director with the target of whatever pounds to fundraise without giving them a budget and serious capacity to do yeah, that yeah. i think some of that change will come just through awareness as well and i was really heartened again we're recording this on a tuesday yesterday which was a monday this gets very confusing depending on which day of the week people listen to this was the start of trustees week here in the uk and it was fantastic is it helen stevenson who's the chief of charity commission put a statement out on charity commission social media yesterday that explicitly acknowledged that trustees are volunteers, which is, I think, the first time I've seen the word volunteer get associated with trustee week in such a high-profile way in a very, very long time. So it's just about changing that, just that awareness of who volunteers are and the significant contribution they already make to society and the fact coming hot on the heels of International Volunteer Managers Day that there's an army of people behind that who support and empower and lead and encourage and inspire people to make that change and and uh, yeah that needs a lot more recognition and a lot more investment and organizations when we talk about investment which is my point from earlier not just to always look for somebody else to fund that but to actually say this is important to us and we need to fund it ourselves just as you were just saying 
income generation is important to us. You never sit there and go, we need to do income generation, but we'll look for a charitable trust or a government department to fund our income generation work. So why do we always do it with volunteering? And you know what? You know what I mean? I'm going to, I think, yeah, I'm actually quite positive about some of that, actually. Mm. I mean, at the risk of this sort of coming out the wrong way, you know I mean? I look at AVM now and I compare that to where that, I think, was when I took over as director of, with responsibility for volunteering at NCVO. And as an organization, it looks to me that it's come on in leaps and bounds Mm. and it is showing leadership across Mm. the sector. It's working with the likes of Volunteering Matters and NCVR who themselves are working together in a way that, that we hadn't before. And I mean, and and I mean that, that quote about, you know, I mean, that they're not your volunteers. Well, the same applies to membership organizations and the infrastructure. We've got to stop fretting about, oh, well, you know, we're in control of the volunteering agenda and we're the only ones that should be saying about what the government should be doing. No, actually. Yeah. And I don't think they do that to be fair to them i think things are much better than they used to be and i and i sense a real opportunity there the fact that they are all working together and and it's something that we can build on yeah and i i would reflect that as well in my experience from the last two and a half years of working with clients that um there are so many more clients who are coming to 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 me and to other consultants that i know who are saying we need help to really transform our approach to volunteering and it's not the volunteer manager that's saying that because the volunteer managers always said that it's members of the senior leadership team, it's the chief exec, it's the board, who you could argue, you you know, you know, you could make the argument, why weren't you looking at this a few years ago and then you may have weathered the last couple of years a little bit better. Actually, I prefer to think of it as great. If that's, the good, if that's a good thing that's come out of the COVID-19 pandemic is organisations are taking volunteering more seriously at a strategic level. Let's seize that moment. Let's capitalize on it and let's really make some transformation happen. One of the things that we're doing in this season of the podcast is I'm asking every guest to give us a piece of wisdom. So one piece of wisdom that you would share with our listeners. I'm going to twist it slightly. So I definitely want your piece of wisdom for people who are listening to this, who are volunteer engagement professionals who are looking to upskill and and develop their practice into a more advanced level. But one of the things that I didn't mention about Carl in my introduction to him, which is something that I learned about him from from meeting with him when he took over, is that he and I have a shared love of the, well, it used to be a niche genre, but it isn't so much of a niche genre anymore, of progressive rock music, which, which can include the kind of 80, 1970s, 1960s, long beards, caftans, chin-stroking kind of progressive rock music, but also some of the more up-to-date, modern, cutting-edge stuff. So what I'm going to do, Carl, is I, I want your one piece of wisdom. And then because Matt Hick from the Heritage Volunteering Group asked me for a, a song or an album that sums up volunteer management recently, and I chose Close to the Edge by Yes. So as well as your piece of wisdom, I would also like you to make one recommendation for a piece, an, an album of progressive rock music that people hear could pick up and listen to it. They've never listened to it before that might change their mind about prog. Listeners, um, there is a look of abject panic on Carl Wilding's face. Well, well, my wisdom was I, I went on a, a sort of a, a leadership, three-day leadership course, and I was really fortunate that I heard the previous executive chairman of the John Lewis Partnership oh, yeah. come and speak, Charlie Mayfield. Yeah, yeah. And he was talking about travails that, that John Lewis was going through as it navigated this massive shift in retail from stores 
to to online. And he said, what we've all got to remember is that the things that made us successful in the past may not be the things that make us successful in the future. Right. And I that just really resonated with me because you know, I mean, you potentially can be in an organization at a time where you were at the peak of what's going well and so on, and you think it's gonna last forever. Yeah. And 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 nothing lasts forever. So you've always got to be looking ahead. You've got to keep your head above the parapet all the time. And you've got to be looking around at what's changing organizations around you, what's changing in other sectors around you, that you might look at those sectors and sort of think, mm, what, what would that ha- mean if that happened for us? So that, that's my wisdom. Modern progressive rock. The single best progressive rock band in, in the last 20 years, and I, and I don't like all that 1970s stuff, for what it's worth. I'm not. A There's uh, the band called Big Big Train. Yes. And they've got an album called English Electric. Yes. And it's it's musings on on England on on, on England and, and past and if if you like sort of slightly pastoral sort of type music sort of a modern interpretation of Genesis it's oh, it's the stories are brilliant. Yeah. That is an absolutely fantastic shout. Big big train definitely a band to go and check out david longdon very sadly missed the lead singer who died but they're still going and excellent band thank you so much carl i hope you don't mind me revealing our mutual love of progressive rock <laughs> music to people we actually have quite elect- eclectic and electric tastes but but whenever carl and i meet up face to face which isn't as often as it used to be we always like to exchange albums that we've been listening to recently and and share so i can't i can't let that opportunity pass by and of course <laughs> listener if you are a fan of progressive rock music, you can join Progressive Rock Fans Anonymous along with Carl and I and uh, leave a comment wherever you found this podcast with the albums that you think we should check out. And there's a danger that this podcast now starts veering into a, a Steve Wilson-esque musical conversation yeah. instead, which wouldn't be a bad thing. He would have been my second choice. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed for your time today, Carl. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. I know people are going to get a real buzz out of listening to what you've you've said. Tell us a little bit about how people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more. We'll obviously put stuff in the show notes as well. But what's the easiest way for people to reach out to you if they want to get in touch? Uh, well, if Twitter is still around by the time this goes out... <laughs> I'm at Carl Wilding, all one word on Twitter, and that's Carl with a K. If you just Google Google Carl Wilding, I think you'll probably find me. Fantastic. And if you can't find him, get in touch with me, Rob Jackson Consulting, and we'll put you in touch with Carl. Thanks a lot, Carl. Great to speak to you today. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. Cheers. Cheers.